I think that's what we're supposed to learn from this movie, though I'm not 100% sure. Just what you've been waiting for. Movies, TV, music, and more. Follow, subscribe, stay up to date. Episodes drop every other Monday. Welcome, everyone, to the Matt Watch That Podcast, the place for reviews, rants, and randomness. I'm your host, Matt Sarosky, filmmaker, film fan. Each episode, I'm going to watch a movie or TV pilot that I probably should have seen but never got around to. It could be a recent favorite, critic's choice, or cult classic. To join in on the conversation, follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've discussed or suggestions as to what I should see next, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. Before we start, during the pandemic, the idea of streaming was a goldmine for entertainment executives. They saw dollar signs in their eyes. All the studios started rolling out their own platforms of pluses then they started to realize when you give away hundreds of movies and thousands of episodes for a low price of $9.99 per month, that's not exactly a money-making venture. Now, with the pandemic behind us, I think, these entertainment executives are losing billions of dollars while receiving millions in undeserved bonuses. And they're scrambling to figure out how to gain capital. First, they're raising the prices on their streaming platforms. Next, they're offering cheaper-priced ad-supported options so that they can double-dip with subscriber fees and commercials. So they're basically reverting back to the cable strategy of 30 years ago. Also, WB has been selling their high-profile DC movies to Prime, Netflix, and basically anyone who'll pay for a licensing window. Universal is doing the same with the Super Mario movie. Originally, that was exclusive to Peacock. Now, it's on Netflix. What else is happening? What else is in the news? Ah, yes, MSG Networks and Yes Networks are teaming up for a streaming service that will offer New York Knicks and Yankees games exclusively. This is the future, my friends. If you want to see every game of your favorite sports team, you'll have to buy all these services. Also, Warner Brothers and Paramount are talking merger which would combine two iconic studio libraries and their streaming services, Max and Paramount+. Plus. I guess the brothers didn't learn from the turkey that is the WB Discovery merger. That one worked out so well. But this is what happens when you have business people in creative positions. It's not about the content. It's not about making quality movies and TV series. It's about upping the bottom line, making money for shareholders and investors, and that's it. Don't expect this to change anytime soon. These executives have killed the theatrical business, the home video market, and they're making no money off streaming. I guess what these executives are hoping for is an Oppenheimer sequel and 27 Barbie spinoffs. On to the main attraction. Each review will end with a ranking out of five stars. One star is skip it. Two stars watch at your own risk. Three stars standard fare. Four stars worth checking out and five stars must see. 
Now, if I give a title five stars, it doesn't mean I'm comparing it to Casablanca, Jaws, or Seinfeld. I rank titles based on other movies or TV series in that genre and at that time period. On this episode of the podcast, I'll be reviewing The Devil Wears Prada from 2006. It was directed by David Frankel, who helmed the family drama Marley and Me, romantic dramedy Hope Springs, and schmaltzy collateral beauty. His father, Max Frankel, was editor for the New York Times. The screenplay was written by Aline Brosh McKenna, who scribed romantic comedies 27 Dresses and Morning Glory, family drama We Bought a Zoo, and co-created Crazy Ex-Girlfriend with Rachel Bloom. It was based on the novel of the same name by Lauren Weisberger, which was partially inspired by her job as personal assistant for Vogue editor Anna Wintour, though the characters are an amalgamation of various work experiences, also known as Please Don't Sue Me for This Story. It stars Meryl Streep as Miranda Presley. The Jersey-born actress studied at Vassar College and received an MFA from the Yale School of Drama. She started in theater, but after seeing Robert De Niro's performance in Taxi Driver, she was inspired to pursue film. She had a small part in the Jane Fonda vehicle Julia in 1977. When De Niro saw her in the play The Cherry Orchard, he suggested her for the role of his girlfriend in The Deer Hunter. The rest is history. The most decorated actress in our lifetime, she's been nominated for a record 21 Academy Awards, winning three for Kramer vs. Kramer, Sophie's Choice, and The Iron Lady. Anne Hathaway portrays Andrea Andy Sachs, best known as Mia Thermopolis in The Princess Diaries. Her first role was in the short-lived sitcom Get Real, which co-starred Jesse Eisenberg. She was cast in two Disney films, The Princess Diaries and The Other Side of Heaven. She would transition to drama in supporting roles in Nicholas Nickleby and the Best Picture Academy Award-nominated Brokeback Mountain. In 2013, she won an Oscar for Best Performance by an actress in a supporting role for Les Miserables. This is something to look out for. Patricia Field spent over $1 million in costume designs, making it the most expensive to attire in film history. It was money well spent, as she would receive an Academy Award nomination for her work. The costumes would be sold off at auction for breast cancer research. So let's jump into it. Andy Sachs is a recent graduate from Northwestern University. She was accepted into Stanford Law, but decides to move to New York to become a journalist. She was editor-in-chief of the Daily Northwesterner and won a national competition for college journalists. She has an interview at Runway Fashion Magazine and meets with Emily Charlton, the first assistant to Miranda Presley, the editor-in-chief and legend in the industry. The position is for a second assistant, which the last two women only lasted a few weeks in. Interest in fashion is critical, and they need to be a survivor. A million girls would kill for this job. If she could last a year, that would lead to other opportunities in publishing that better fit her qualifications. When Emily is alerted that Miranda is arriving to work early, the office bursts into chaos. People run around making sure that everything is perfect, all needs are anticipated. Miranda enters looking fashionable with perfectly coiffed white hair. She has a reputation for being high-maintenance and career-obsessed. When she sees Andy in less-than-desirable clothing, she requests to meet with the candidate. After running down her fashion sense and making crude remarks about her body type, Andy chimes in that she might not be glamorous or skinny, but she's smart and learns fast. As she leaves with the idea that she failed the interview, she's brought back by Emily to inform her that she's gotten the job. 
As Andy attempts to navigate the world of high fashion, will she be able to stick it out or become another casualty of Miranda? Here's a quote without context. By all means, move at a glacial pace. You know how that thrills me. The Devil Wears Prada is a curious movie for me. From a filmmaking standpoint, it's pretty stellar. The acting, as expected, is really strong from all involved. There were two great time-pass montages of Miranda coming into work, putting a different coat and bag combination on Andy's desk, and of Andy coming into work in different and more fashionable clothing. Both were extremely effective. But from an entertainment standpoint, I'm not sure that I enjoyed watching it. I know these moments were played for comedy, but I didn't take any pleasure in seeing someone being abused by their boss. And none of the characters outside of Andy were all that sympathetic. I thought the relationship between Andy and her boyfriend Nate could have been expanded upon more. I didn't get much chemistry between them. So when her job starts to interfere in the relationship, I wasn't so heavily invested in them. I wasn't actively rooting for them. I think a couple more scenes together would have helped strengthen my desire for them to either be in a relationship or not. But maybe none of that is the point. It could just literally be about Andy and her growth. How a job can change you. Your focus. How you can lose your identity when work is your priority. And then no matter how much you think you're above corporate politics, the longer you're in the game, you start to play it. I think that's what we're supposed to learn from this movie, though I'm not 100% sure. Now for a little trivial trivia. Co-stars Emily Blunt and Stanley Tucci would become family in 2012 when he married her sister, Felicity. They were introduced at Emily's wedding to John Krasinski two years prior. The Devil Wears Prada was produced by Fox 2000 Pictures, Dune Entertainment, and Wendy Feinerman Productions. It was filmed at the St. Regis Sheridan Hotel, the Cary Building, and Silver Cup Studios in New York City, with two days shot at Musea Galleria and Fontaine des Flaws, Place de la Concorde in Paris, France, or however the hell you pronounce that. The cinematography was captured by Florian Ballhaus, whose filmography includes action comedy Red, war drama The Book Thief, and Adventure Allegiant of the Divergent series. It was edited by Mark Lavolsi, who worked on fantasy drama Vanilla Sky, comedy Wedding Crashers, and biographical, or maybe not so biographical, The Blind Side. The score was composed by Theodore Shapiro, who worked on the music for animated films Spies in Disguise, biographical drama Bombshell, and fantasy The School for Good and Evil. He won a Primetime Emmy for Outstanding Music Composition for a series, original dramatic score, of Severance. The soundtrack featured songs by Katie Tunsell, Madonna, Bell and Sebastian, and Jamiroquai. The runtime is 1 hour 49 minutes. It had a budget of $39 million and grossed $326 million at the box office. It was nominated for two Oscars at the 2007 Academy Awards for Best Achievement in Costume Design and Performance by an Actress in a Leading Role. On the Ski Index, I give it 3.5 out of 5 stars. Add half a star if names like Chanel, Armani, Versace, Dior, and Ford hold any interest for you. If you've seen The Devil Wears Prada and have opinions on the movie, let me know what you think using the hashtag MattWatchThat. Moving right along, each episode, I'm going to post clips that I think people should watch. It could be movie trailers, music videos, interviews, or something completely random. 
Search for my YouTube page and there will be a playlist called Matt Watch That Playback. When Johnny Carson announced that he was stepping down as the host of The Tonight Show in 1992, his chosen replacement and the natural predecessor would have been David Letterman, whose show Late Night followed at 12.30. But when NBC executives chose Jay Leno as the successor of The Tonight Show, David Letterman left for CBS, who was looking to get into the late-night talk show game. The Late Show with David Letterman debuted on August 30, 1993, at 11.35 p.m., competing head-to-head with Jay Leno. There is a very interesting backstory to all this talk show drama. It includes everything, network politics, contract disputes, backstabbing, all captured in the novel The Late Shift, Letterman, Leno, and the network battle for the night which was turned into a made-for-television film of the same name. But I wanted to focus on the relationship between Johnny Carson and David Letterman. You can tell from the interviews and skits they did together that they genuinely liked each other. There was a natural rapport and respect there. After his retirement, Johnny Carson would only appear on The Late Show, and he was known to send jokes to David Letterman for his monologues. To further showcase their bond, I've selected a couple of clips. The first one is when David Letterman returned to Late Night with Conan O'Brien as a passing of the torch gesture. He also spoke about the stolen truck incident with Johnny Carson. In short, Carson thought Letterman's truck was an eyesore, had it stolen, then Letterman sued him for damages to said truck, which was presided over by Judge Wapner of the People's Court. So I've posted videos of this incident. They're all available in the Matt Watch That Playback playlist on YouTube. Check it out. Now it's time for the recommendation. Yes, that's the word recommendation with Matt in the middle. I'm going to end each podcast with my own recommendation of a movie or TV series. Today I'm talking about Click. It tells the story of Michael Newman, a workaholic architect who's given a remote control that can mute inane conversations, fast forward through a boring meeting, and rewind a memorable moment. It stars Adam Sandler as the main character. His wife is portrayed by Kate Beckinsale. David Hasselhoff plays his boss. His parents are acted by Henry Winkler and Julie Kavner. And Christopher Walken was cast as Morty. It also features Sean Astin, Jonah Hill, Jennifer Coolidge, and Rachel Dratch. It was directed by Frank Carassi, who previously worked with Adam Sandler on The Wedding Singer and The Waterboy. He would go on to collaborate with Sandler associate Kevin James on Zookeeper and Here Comes the Boom. It was written by Steve Corin, who scribed episodes of Saturday Night Live, Seinfeld, and won a Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Comedy Series as producer on Veep, and Mark O'Keefe, whose filmography includes Bruce Almighty and episodes of Politically Incorrect, News Radio, and The Late Show with David Letterman. For those new to the podcast, I tend to watch movies or wrestling as I go to bed. I can't fall asleep in silence. I need something playing. But I can only watch things that I've seen before. Otherwise, I end up getting involved in the story. Well, I had seen Click before, but not recently enough. It actually would have been a good candidate for Matt Forgot That, because I ended up engaged with the plot, and before I knew it, it was 12.30 a.m. on a work night. I thought this was a cute movie. It's more in line with Big Daddy in terms of humor and heart than Happy Gilmore or Billy Madison. The second half of the film is a little more dramatic, and there are some moments of touching scenes. It's a mixture of Back to the Future, It's a Wonderful Life, and A Christmas Carol, with an Adam Sandler sensibility. 
It's also got a great soundtrack with the Cars, the Kinks, Tears for Fears, Nazareth, and T-Rex. So watch it, let me know what you think. Hit me up using the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. That's all for this edition of Matt Watch That. Thanks for listening to me, Bow. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've discussed or suggestions as to what movie or TV pilot I should see, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. Head over to MattSarosky.com for all the latest news and updates. And come back next time for the reviews, rants, and randomness. It tells the story of Michael Newman, a workaholic architect. Architect. Carson thought Letterman's truck was an eyesore, had it stolen. Then Letterman sued him for damages to said truck, which was presided over by Judge Whopper of... Whopper. His parents are acted by Henry Winkler. Henry.